welcome to Nerd News with Gregory Symington. Well, there's not really very much point to me saying anything now. Avengers Endgame has happened, the Night King has finally arrived at Winterfell and Game of Thrones. Everything we were waiting for from the world of fictional entertainment for the sake of forgetting about those three practicals you have to you on Monday has finally come and gone. And I sure will have a lot to say after the grace period for spoilers is over, but suffice it to say that my life's goals are all complete for now. Maybe next week I'll decide to get really big into Jane the Virgin or become one of those violent archaeological explorers that don't seem to understand that if your excavation requires a whip, it's because you've done something terribly wrong, or at the very least, disregarded the standards of best practice set by your university. But for now, I guess we just have to let all that marinate. Starks were definitely the heroes of the weekend. Oh, what am I even complaining about? I know for a fact I'm going to irresponsibly watch this stuff seven more times by tomorrow evening. Yesterday's Game of Thrones episode might not have been an hour and a half long fight to the death against the dead themselves, but it did reveal the show's biggest twist, which is the existence of coffee shops in Westeros, as somehow the world's most expensive period TV show slipped up on one of the things that makes it period to begin with, the set dressing. The other thing, of course, being the existence of dragons, which, as everyone knows, were officially declared extinct in 1654 after the last one was accidentally shot by a sailor who was, and this is all totally true, aiming for a dodo. One can only presume this renders coffee an in-canon beverage in the land of Westeros, meaning we could well be seeing future wars fought over the resources as winter continues to ravage the lands upon which coffee is farmed. That's right, I do only the most accurate GOT predictions here on the Nerd News. That's definitely going to factor into whoever finally winds up sitting on the Iron Throne in the next two weeks because, and here's the real news, there are only two episodes left of the world's biggest television show. One might say we're in the endgame now, Starks. Love you 3000. So I realise this is particularly nerdy even for a show called Nerd News in which I tend to discuss literal black holes and all also recent scientific developments in giraffe research, but there is some new Star Trek news, and not just pertaining specifically to the Star Trek Discovery show, which did recently conclude its second season to reactions best described as what bananas look like once you've made a smoothie out of them, because they were mixed. I'm sorry, I'll leave right after this. The Star Trek news is that the as-of-yet-unnamed Jean-Luc Picard-based show about the captain of the Enterprise during the Next Generation run, I'm sorry, I did warn you about the nerdiness at the beginning, has officially begun shooting, which means, even if the show gets cancelled, footage exists of Sir Patrick Stewart reprising possibly his most beloved role. Indeed, barring said cancellation, presumably after a CBS executive realises warp drives are scientifically inaccurate and that the show therefore ceases to have intrinsic value, Picard, or whatever they call it, Star Trek, it's the same, we're still in space, Picard's still here, will release in late 2019, which is this year. It's incredible how quickly you can get things done when you're making a sci-fi my TV show that doesn't require you to set an ancient West Rosy castle on fire, but not entirely unexpected. As further confirmation that they're not trying to pull a Half-Life 3 after nigh on a decade of waiting and exactly 7 billion DLC packs and spin-off games to tie desperate fans over lest they revolt and set fire to Gearbox's offices, which would, I'm sure, at the very least upset Gary and Human Resources, a proper gameplay trailer has been released for Borderlands 3, which is primarily just good because it means at least some portions of the game are technically 
playable in theory, so this is definitely going to be a real game. I realise I'm being paranoid, but this is a medium of entertainment in which whole titles can just disappear in flames like a 19th century spire attached to a medieval cathedral. I mean, it can't be too soon if you have to think about what I'm referencing, probably. The news here is that you can slide on the ground now, I guess. Get hype, Borderlands fans. Finally, we have gained mastery over life and death and the ability to reach into hell itself and pull beings kicking and screaming from the terrifying collection of Pokemon that guard the edge of our mortal plane. They're all Mr. Mimes. I mean, I may be somewhat over-exaggerating what I'm assuming was a fairly boring and clinical procedure, but I'm willing to bet it sounded more fun that way than when the BBC said it. The specific event I'm overhyping was the revival of four pigs' brain activity several hours after their death by a team of scientists who, were it not for the protection of the law, would probably be sitting in a volcano right now, stroking a hairless cat and muttering, No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die, under their breath, trying to get it to sound just right. But because real life is always a little more boring than all that, the team working at Yale University have stressed that not only did they fail to recover consciousness in the pigs, but the experiment was explicitly designed to avoid that outcome, which would probably ask some tricky ethical questions they didn't want to have to deal with while they were pulling brains out of the back of a pig's head. The partial rejuvenation of certain brain functions, like the circulatory system, four hours after the death of the donors, was achieved by treating the tissue with a chemical solution designed for preservation. And the outcome could potentially help scientists of the future better understand brain development and disorders. And in what seems like a weird aside at a time when everyone's eyes are firmly fixed on GOT and Avengers Endgame, Star Wars Celebration gave us a trailer for Star Wars Episode 9, Rise of Skywalker. Yes, that is the real name. It's certainly, well, extant now. That's something you can't take back. It does hint at all manner of possibilities for the plot, and thank goodness, because I was starting to think I knew where this trilogy was going after they offed the Emperor knockoff in the second movie. Of course, the last time Star Wars fans didn't incessantly moan about a Star Wars movie was Empire Strikes Back from the 1980s, so I'm just giving ordinary people fair warning that they're going to have to listen to a lot of people get very upset about the cool space adventure with magic, although that might just be an early prediction. It's not like there are entire YouTube channels built off of making five-hour rants about each individual film in this franchise they allegedly like or anything. So, yet another study has confirmed the ability of cats to recognize their own names, despite the fact that they offer very little enthusiasm when physically acknowledging you. But when it came to my weird animal stuff quota for the week, I decided to focus on April's apparent MVP, the bee. Because in news that left me feeling much worse about the frequent bee swarms I weathered at high school sports games, four bees were discovered living in a woman's actual eye. Referred to in the press as Ms. He, her eye became irritable after some dust blew into it while she was sweeping as part of a burial ritual, because the story can, in fact, get worse than four bees in a person's eye. The bees that, it turned out, were now living inside her face are incredibly small. A species called sweat bees, just four millimeters long, found in Taiwan, and rely on alternative sources of pollen, like the sweat inside your eyeball, apparently. The plus side to the story, that's leaving people all abuzz. <clears throat> I'm, I'm so sorry. 
I, I, I'm, I'm so incredibly sorry. Is that because she didn't rub her eyes, which may apparently have caused B to sing, neither person nor B was harmed during any of this? And for more wild animal tales, it's time to return to space for something possibly slightly less important than the world's first proper image of a black hole, but equally record-breaking, because apparently one of the many things we'd not yet thought to do to mice, and we've thought up a couple of utterly bizarre things, was take them to space and film whatever it is they decide to do when their world spontaneously stops functioning as expected. More specifically, this is the first proper behavioural study of mice in space, which is apparently somewhat distinct to previous attempts at this sort of thing, in that they weren't just trying to work out whether or not the mice would survive, and mice do indeed display unique behaviour under microgravity conditions. They run rally enthusiastic circles around their enclosure, for example, which had scientists scratching their heads, although I definitely do the same thing if you put me in a cage and turned off the gravity. Over time, the spaceflight mice began to move more quickly throughout the habitat, translating with ease through the open spaces, but also anchoring their bodies using tails and or paws, said the study's authors when recalling their findings. Continuing my cinematic morning, the 25th Bond film is doing its rounds in development hell, presumably a punishment for the mediocrity that was Spectre, but plans are being made to extricate it. Some by Daniel, I would rather slip my wrist than do another James Bond film, Craig, who is likely going to be making the 25th installment his final, although he has said things that are, shall we say, similar in tone in the past. Hopefully he steps down before Idris Elba hits 50. Sudden legend of the British filmmaking industry, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who wrote and produced both Fleabag and Killing Eve has reportedly been brought on by Craig himself for the completion of the script. The implication seems to be that it was a bit dull and the humorous dark style might be a good fit for livening it up. Space. The final frontier and current parking place of Elon Musk's disused car is filled with planets. Scientists are very interested in finding out if any of them are Earth-like, partly because aliens are cool, but mostly because since we invented nuclear weapons and plastic, they've become increasingly sure they're going to need a backup planet in a few decades. NASA recently put a new planet hunter on the job, and its first find is in. The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short, because apparently even astronomers can name things properly every now and then, has found a planet just 53 light-years away with a radius 0.9 that of the planet Earth. So unfortunately, with an orbital period of just eight days, it is most likely completely on fire, or at the very least, terribly uncomfortable to touch. So it's not a great backup. Also, the whole 53 light-years away thing is still a bit of an inconvenience, given that we're not even entirely sure we can safely put people on Mars. I'm still waiting for them to make that reality show where they try anyway. It'll be like Game of Thrones, but in a tiny locked room and unfortunately realistic. 3 printing is still slightly like the modern-day version of 90s hacking in that Hollywood doesn't quite understand it or feel like doing it accurately, but we've still managed to make it do some fairly impressive things, provided you define the term impressive as several thousand pirated Legos, and read that in the future tense, because as soon as I work out how to disable the security on the 3D printer in the Engineering Study Center, I'm going to make me a Death Star set replica. However, in perhaps slightly more important news, the world's first ever 3D printed heart has been produced, using tissue from a human patient. This is significant because, generally speaking, complicated organ structures are complicated, i.e. hard to duplicate with technology, and indeed, that's not quite what the team has done. The heart is only about the size of a rabbit's heart, which is, fun fact, not quite yet big enough, but it gets scientists a step closer to cultivating hearts that are fully accepted by a host's immune system, in theory. Apparently, today's theme was things that sound cooler in the headline than in real life, and why that's okay unless you're trying to use those stories to entertain people. While I reckon the Tyrannosaurus Rex is actually cool enough to warrant non-stop coverage even when there is absolutely 
Zero to report, the old tyrant lizard king, whose name reads like his very bones, scarred paleontologists from beyond their 65 million year old grave and mostly disused parking lot construction sites, has been having a fun couple of weeks. For one thing, the world's largest and oldest T-Rex find has been confirmed to be in Canada. I say confirmed because the excavation actually began in 1991, proving that there are people at university who work slower than I do on projects, if only by a very small margin. It was declared the Rex of Rexes by Scott Parsons, who headed up the team from the University of Alberta. The T-Rex also sparked some controversy when one Alan Dietrich listed a partial baby Tyrannosaurus skeleton on eBay for a remarkable $3 million. Should it be purchased, this would not in fact be the first time this sort of trade has occurred, as a dinosaur fossil from Wyoming was auctioned off at $2 million in Paris just last year. Which means if you've ever wanted to own a piece of Cretaceous history and you have millions of US dollars worth of disposable income, now has never been a better time for you to be alive. In fairness, you were probably doing just fine already given the whole millions of dollars thing. Are you a fan of the use of Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful Life in Toy Story but wish that instead of sad anthropomorphic toys that was playing over scenes of super expressive CGI Pokemon? I know that would have been a better movie and Pixar were dumb for not making it, but now Ryan Reynolds is all over that in an attempt to prove he can sell literally anything using his YouTube channel and the complete destruction of the fourth wall. Has him releasing a non-stop stream of Pokemon heavy footage for his upcoming eponymous role in the Detective Pikachu movie, which yes, does continue to be a real thing that exists, despite just how saying that all sounds when I read it out loud into a microphone. All of which is presumably an aid of Reynolds' slow and necessary transition from leading man to marketing assistant, because as everyone in Hollywood knows, that's where the real power lies. Robert Downey Jr. might make a ton of money, dinosaur fossil money even, but Marvel could release a trailer for Avengers Endgame tomorrow in which he just sits in the bathtub playing with a rubber duck for half an hour, and he would be powerless to stop them. Except that Robert Downey Jr. is actually a terrible example here, because his contract clearly states all gratuitous nude scenes must last at least 30 eight minutes, or none at all. Did I make this Pokemon story about Avengers Endgame for absolutely no reason? Of course I did. All newsreaders should be doing it. The hype is real. The world, or rather the solar system's first recording of a Mars quake has possibly occurred, finally turning a months-old theoretical linguistics debate into a real linguistics debate. Specifically, if Mars had earthquakes, would they be called Mars quakes or just earthquakes on Mars? Turns out it's the one that takes their space in a newspaper headline. It's surprising, literally no Oh, you were surprised, Jonathan. Well, that speaks for itself, then. This after a Marsquake-like signal was picked up by the latest of NASA's Martian rovers, InSight, whose drill I feel I need to point out was last recorded as stuck on a harder rock than NASA expected, after having been shot 54.6 million kilometers to get to a completely different planet. Bruce Bannett, whose parents were clearly into a specific comic book character of NASA, declared these new readings, which are not yet conclusive, have officially kicked off a new field of Martian seismology. This is not altogether uncommon in our solar system, provided the object in question isn't made entirely of gas, given that seismic activity has been detected on things as barren and dead as the moon. That's right, I'm talking down the moon. While I'm at it, grass is overrated and I've always found clouds way too supercilious. And obviously sand is annoying. It gets everywhere. The mystery of Steve has apparently been solved. And greatly, though, I want that to refer to the secret behind Steve's hair and Stranger Things, we are not blessed with more Stranger Things news this day. Just two months left to go, though, more or less. No, Steve here stands for Strong Thermal Emissions Velocity Enhancement, because among the scientific community, which nobody needs reminding is responsible for names like C35-A, there are some true heroes. What Steve actually describes is an anomalous form of aurora, the prefix used to describe the northern and southern lights. 
a basically an interestingly patterned bunch of lights in the sky far further south than they have any right to be. Presumably, they managed to get Jon Snow to save them from the Night King. Spoilers, by the way, for season five of the world's most watched television show. Had two years after season seven, Jonathan, I will not apologize. I feel nothing. Aurora is defined by particle precipitation, electrons and protons actually falling into our atmosphere, whereas the Steve atmospheric glow comes from heating without particle precipitation, said Begalado Lacour, which is a remarkably professional way for someone to admit to spending their scientific career trying to investigate Steve. Speaking of nerds in space, there is fresh information from the data sent home by Cassini, the space probe we were using to monitor Saturn until we were absolutely certain the risk of him restarting the great Titanic war, Titanmachy, of Greek mythology was as near zero as possible, which it turns out is pretty damn close, but you can't take any chances with these gas giants. Before flying into Saturn's atmosphere, because it was necessary to destroy all possible human input into Saturn's orbit, on the off chance we detect bacteria there and want to be sure of its origin, Cassini recorded an ice corridor on Titan, the solar system's second largest natural satellite, clocking in at 50% larger than Earth's moon. Which you can kind of tell because they called it Titan and not just, I don't know, moon. The icy corridor is puzzling because it doesn't correlate with any surface features nor measurements of the subsurface, said Caitlin Griffiths of a team at the University of Arizona's findings. What this region actually is is a series of probably dormant cryovolcanoes, which from a scientific perspective is one of the coolest sentences anyone's ever let me say, except maybe, good morning, Zakumi. It's time to watch Game of Thrones. Who's a good boy? If the latest Game of Thrones episode taught us anything, is that the night is dark and filled with people tweeting about how annoying that is to them. But it's also the best time to look at the galaxy for exactly this reason. And it's a galaxy that, as it turns out, has vastly more water worlds than initially suspected. Was that a stretch of a segue? Well, it was that or a joke about Kevin Costner. And I don't know how many people remember that time he starred in Rally Big Swimming Pools the movie. More accurately, there's some debate going on about a category of planet we've been finding between two and four times the radius of Earth. There might be either a kind of dwarf gas giant or something more aqueous. The latter is an exciting prospect because, famously, we found things that can live in water, like seahorses and Kevin Cosner, apparently. Are the first aliens we meet going to be intelligent octopodes? I personally welcome the idea and have already started getting the throne room ready for our new many-legged overlord. Don't you hate it when you're minding your own business on a Sunday afternoon, merrily re-watching Avengers Endgame from the comfort of your friend's jacuzzi, when his pet box jellyfish stings you in the leg, thus rendering both you and all 60 other people in the jacuzzi completely dead? Well, this thing called science has a solution for your incredibly specific problem, although the world's deadliest non-Tom Hardy possessing venom does sort of seem like something they should have solved sooner. Presumably, marine biologists spent the first few years of their research into box jellyfish arguing over the plural of octopus. Given this, you'd expect them to really know what they were doing at this point, but sadly it turns out the researchers working at the University of Sydney, who discovered the death by jellyfish in your friend's jacuzzi-preventing molecule, have so far only tested it on mice and samples of human cells, meaning you should probably stay away from jacuzzis for now, just to be on the safe side. That's been your Nerd News with Gregory Swinton. Tune in next time as I point out continuity errors in even more of your favourite shows, specifically all the horse-drawn carriages and friends, and many ways in which How I Met Your Mother gets the concepts of both time, physics, and how to make a ninth season completely incorrect.